Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 14th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we continue and conclude our series of articles from the Barnes Review, describing the event which is known as the Night of the Long Knives. When we began to present this series, we actually ordered and have just received a copy of the book from which these articles were taken, which is Hitler Democrat by former Waffen SS General Leon de Grell. The six articles we are presenting in this series were actually taken from chapters 38 through 43 of that book, and they were reprinted in Barnes Review issues through September-October 2002. As we had already discussed, de Grel was a Belgian journalist, politician, and founder of the Rexist Party, and then later a National Socialist and Waffen-SS volunteer, who during the war had worked his way up the ranks from private to colonel. Then he was evidently promoted to general as the war came to its unfortunate end. Yes, I said its unfortunate end. Last week we presented articles titled The Rome Crisis Worsens and Last Millimeters of the Fuse, which continued to describe the events leading up to the famous National Socialist Purge and which fully described its necessity, for the alternative was to send Germany down another path to civil war. This week, we shall present the next articles in the series, The Bloody End of Ernst Rome, The Night of the Long Knives, and then 38 million Germans make their voices heard. A landslide victory for Adolf Hitler, which gives us an impression of how well the German people had thought of Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists only weeks after the purge. Leon de Grel describes Ernst Röhm's political and economic philosophy in a manner that impels us to label him as a Marxist. It is our understanding that Adolf Hitler was absolutely ambivalent towards Marxism and that his own political and economic philosophy, as they are described in Mein Kampf, were grounded in Christian principles and absolutely antithetical to Marxism. Furthermore, Adolf Hitler's revolution was political and ended as soon as the National Socialist German Workers' Party came to power in 1933. But for Ernst Röhm, the revolution had only begun and needed to continue, ostensibly until he could fulfill his own desires to bring his own form of Bolshevism to Germany. But the trouble between the two men erupted over Rome's promotion of the Sturmabteilung, or SA, the party's paramilitary organization, as a replacement 
for the German Wehrmacht, the regular army which Rome sought to dismantle. It is obvious to us, and evidently became obvious to Hitler, that Rome wanted the SA to replace the Wehrmacht so that he, as its commander, could supplant the NSDAP leadership and execute his continued revolution. This is the picture Leon de Grel has painted for us in the first four of these articles. And here we have its culmination as we present The Bloody End of Ernst Rome, The Knight of the Long Knives by Leon de Grel. De Grel, before we begin, de Grel opens his article with a discussion of Franz von Papen, who was at this time an independent politician who had been the former Chancellor of Germany. In a November 1932 election, the National Socialists had actually lost some votes from the earlier elections. However, they still had enough seats in the Reichstag to lead a majority coalition. Von Papen was Prime Minister of Prussia, as well as the Vice-Chancellor of the Reich, appointed by von Hindenburg, from January of 1993. In April of that year, he was replaced in the first office by Rome's co-conspirator, General Kurt von Schleicher, and he remained vice-chancellor until a few days after the death of Bismarck, August 7th of 1934. After the war, von Papen lived until May of 1969. He was politically neutralized on the Night of the Long Knives, but he was spared. His life was spared. Now we shall proceed with Leon de Grel. And he begins by saying that a man who had not yet appeared openly in the Rome-Schleicher-Strasser affair was Vice-Chancellor Franz von Papen. Von Papen had been placed in this position close to Adolf Hitler by Oscar von Hindenburg on January 30th 1933. Now, we don't know why he says Oscar von Hindenburg, because the president of Germany at this time is Paul von Hindenburg. And he makes that same statement in the following article, in the article which follows this one. And I don't know why it is. Von Papen had been placed in this position close to Adolf Hitler by Oscar von Hindenburg on January 30th, 1933 to keep an eye on the Fuhrer and after three months he was already hardly more than a vaguely recognized supernumerary in the Chancellery. Perhaps Oscar von Hindenburg was also the head of a party that was able to do that. However, the appointment was by his father Paul. He was morose, speaking of von Papen, he was morose that Hitler fellow, who was gaining an ever-grading following, was getting on his nerves. It irritated him. No one had ever followed him. In 1932, in the Reichstag, 
he had been whipped by a vote of no confidence, with 96% of the parliamentary vote lined up against him. Impeccable in his cutaway and top hat. But still, what did he amount to? Speaking of von Poppen. On June 14, 1934, Hitler had gone to Italy for his first visit with Mussolini. Poppen, who was not brave by nature, was going to take advantage of this absence of his chief executive to make a speech against him three days after his departure, which would be a rather pedantic match for the twisted intrigues and the delusions of his former friend, then ex-friend, then new friend, General Kurt von Schleicher. The speech that Poppen was going to make was not his own. A ghost had written it for him. His name was Edgar Jung, or Young, and his anti-Hitler writings were going to cost him rather dearly. Young was a target in the Night of the Long Knives. Poppen had chosen the town of Fulda, an old ecclesiastical metropolis, for pulling off his coup. The text that Young had given him was almost laughably exaggerated, particularly inasmuch as it was supposedly written by a man who, while occupying the Reich's chancellorship before Hitler throughout most of 1932, had proved himself incapable of accomplishing anything at all that he, whose political past had been a cipher, should pretend to give lessons to someone who had just put more than two million of Germany's unemployed back to work in only a few months, speaking of Hitler, was utterly presumptuous. Papen spelled out his prefabricated pages, the pages written by Young, at Marburg, with the conviction of a station master. Germany must not be a train launched haphazardly into the future, with nobody knowing where it will stop. Great men are not created by propaganda, but by the valor of their actions and the judgment of history. A defective or half-educated intelligence does not qualify one to engage in a battle against the spirit. Ending this part of Pepin's speech, which de Grel quotes, de Grel says, but the bishops, champions in all types of political quarrels, and whose spokesman Pepin had hoped to be that day, had immediately fallen silent, mitres inclined meekly over their breviaries. They just had their heads down. By his reference to a station master, station master, we can only imagine that de Grel meant to compare his delivery to that of a railroad conductor, as well as the pun that he began his speech with the comparison of Germany to a train. Furthermore, his speech disregarded any National Socialist German Workers' Party accomplishments, and his audience was evidently disengaged to a point of embarrassment. It is clearly Pappen who is battling against the spirit of a nation reinvigorated. 
In the next part of his article, de Grau refers to Heinrich Brüning, Chancellor of Germany from March 1930 until May of 1932, and Brüning was succeeded by Papen. One of his courtiers, one of Brüning's courtiers, was Kurt von Schleicher. Brüning left Germany in 1934, and after a sojourn in the Netherlands and Britain, he came to America in 1937, where he attained a position as a visiting professor at Harvard University, and remained there until 1952. He died in Vermont in 1970. Continuing with de Grel, Brüning, the ex-chancellor, realizing that Poppin's speech had misfired and smelled of heresy, because he's the vice-chancellor to Adolf Hitler, would clear out that very week and make tracks for the Americas. When Hitler had deplaned on his return from Venice, he would make it his business to reply. After having read a report of the speech written by Pepin's ghostwriter, Hitler moved to deal with this very strange colleague, who had thought he was being so clever. A few hours after landing, Hitler challenged him symbolically from the rostrum at a public meeting at Gera in Thuringen, saying that all these little midgets, speaking of Poppin, all these little midgets who imagine they have something to say, will be swept away by the power of our idea of the community. Because whatever criticisms they believe themselves capable of formulating, all these midgets forget one thing. Where is this better thing that could replace what is? Where do they keep whatever it is they want to put in its place? Ridiculous, this little worm who wants to combat so a powerful a renewal of a people. Citing Brassad in Hitler and his time. Schleicher, who had been delighted by Papin's sabotage, was just putting the final touches on his future government. We learned last week that von Schleicher was setting up a government to supplant the government of the Reich, Hitler's government, after the planned coup and Hitler's planned assassination. The list was already making the rounds. Everyone's role was already fixed. As we may read in Benoit Meschen, Hitler will be assassinated. Schleicher will become Chancellor in his place. Gregor Strasser will receive the portfolio of national economy. And Strasser was a serious leftist. As for Ernst Röhm, he will become Minister of the Reichswehr, of the army. It is fitting, Schleicher says, that the army and the national formations, meaning the SA, will be in the same hands. Strasser and Rome having approved his program, Schleicher felt assured of success. And that's from Benoit Meschan's History of the German Army, Volume 3, page 189. De Grau continues, and he says, And so a general, meaning Schleicher, who was choking with ambition, 
a general who six months earlier, as Minister of National Defense, was directly responsible for the Reichswehr. That would be under the Chancellorship of Papen was now determined to place all the generals of the Reichswehr, his own colleagues, under the command of Rome, the constant insulter of the old army. Resentment had turned him into a traitor, this swaggering, cynical man. The thirst for power was consuming him with fury, and he was ready to ally himself with anyone to regain it. Harshly, Historian Benoit Meschan writes, he considers, or Benoit Meschan, I'm sorry, I just destroy French. Harshly, historian Benoit Meschan writes, he considers that the hour has come to make someone pay for his disgrace. A general without an army, a fascist without conviction, and a socialist without any support among the working class. In losing his cabinet post, he has lost his friends. But now that events seem to be turning in his favor, he sees the possibility of getting it all back with a single blow. Tigrell says that. Rumors leaked out concerning the still semi-secret crisis, causing frightened reactions. On June 25th of 1934... This would be five days before the Night of the Long Knives. Hitler was informed that in 15 days, the gold reserves of the Reichsbank had dwindled from 925 million marks to 150 million. The agitation of the SA has caused disquiet in industrial and banking circles. Everything tallied. The army threatened. Anarchy was on the horizon, the specter of devaluation hanging over the Reich. Hitler's lieutenants raised their voices. Rudolf Hess, on June 26, 1934, announced on the radio at Cologne, The Fuhrer will pardon minor personal deviations, considering the magnitude of the, achieves, of the achievements made. But if the party is obliged to join battle, it will do so according to the National Socialist principle. If you strike, strike hard. National Socialism cannot be replaced, he added, not by hand-picked conservative forces, nor by criminal intrigues given the pompous name of Second Revolution, a direct swipe at Rome. Adolf Hitler is and remains a revolutionary in the grand style, he has no need of crutches. Ending the quote from Rudolf Hess. De Grel says, Adolf Hitler is and remain. I'm sorry, De Grel says, Hermann Goring was just as firm at Hamburg on June 28th. And quoting Goring, Pulling a people out of the mire to raise it toward the sun is a superhuman task. The basis on which the Reich rests is confidence in the Führer. Then his warning sounded like the crack of a rifle, where Goring went on to say that whoever seeks to destroy that confidence has signed his death warrant. 
More and more precise information was brought to Hitler, some of it real and some no doubt exaggerated by uneasy imaginings, or understood only more or less exactly by the listening services. These transcriptions of wiretapped telephone conversations of the conspirators were full of gross insults directed at Hitler. Secret agents followed the suspects. Letters were seized as well, very accusing letters. Goring was most impressed by the documents. And quoting, quoting um, an account of the events of June 30th from the Manchester Guardian, which wasn't printed until the following August 9th. DeGrill says, feverish preparations are also being made in the National Socialist camp. The black militia are in a state of alert. A certain number of SS sections are armed with rifles and 120 cartridges per rifle. The shock troops known as the SS Section Grossbeeren are on a war footing. Certain formations of the Automobile Corps, or NSKK, are mobilized and armed with carbines. It is June 28, 1934. Hitler has left for Essen, where he has to attend a wedding and to meet some big industrialists in the field of metallurgy. On the following day, June 29th, he will inspect the labor service camps in Westphalia. Then, out of the blue, he is going to receive news of the most alarming nature. Rome has given orders to all of the SA commanders to join him on the shores of the Tegernsee or Lake Tegern, on the afternoon of June 30th, and all units of the SA have received orders to remain at the disposal of their commanders, citing Benoit Meshan, volume 1, page 192, which is probably an error for volume 3, page 192. Now, the next day, the 1st of July, is precisely the day when the leave decreed by Hitler, the 30-day leave, for the three million men of the SA is to begin. Hitler himself has given us an account of these particularly dramatic hours. This account from the pages of the same historian, Benoit Meshan, The History of the German Army. The mobilization of the SA on the eve of their departure on leave seemed to me very unusual, me being Adolf Hitler. I decided, therefore, to relieve the chief of staff, meaning Rome, of his duties on Saturday, June 30th, to put him under close arrest until further orders, and to eliminate a certain number of SA commanders whose criminal activities were notorious. Given the tenseness of events... I thought that the chief of staff would probably not obey me if I ordered him to Berlin or elsewhere. I consequently resolved to go myself to the conference of the commanders of the SA. So Rome calls this huge meeting of all the commanders of the SA. Hitler decides that he's going to go there. Relying on my personal authority and on the decisiveness that never failed me in critical moments, 
I plan to arrive there on Saturday at noon to dismiss the chief of staff on the spot, to arrest the principal instigators of the plot, and to address a rousing appeal to the commandants of the SA to recall them to their duties. DeGroll says, Hitler has just ended his Westphalia visit amongst the young workers. He has arrived to spend the night at a hotel he is fond of, the home of an old comrade, Herr Driesen. From his balcony he looks out over a beautiful stretch of the Rhine, as if the heavens wished to join in his personal drama. A storm thunderclaps and flashes of lightning burst in the in a veritable Wagnerian hurricane. Goebbels has come at 9.30 p.m. in a special plane from Berlin to bring him other messages that have come in hour by hour to increase the disquiet. The alert has been given in the capital for the following day at 4 p.m. Trucks have been requisitioned to transport the shock troops. The actions will begin at 5 p.m. sharp with the sudden occupation of the ministerial buildings, this being part of the plans for the coup by which would which would have been led by Ernst Rome. De Grel says that there is no time to sift through each of the reports to weigh which are true and which are fraudulent or imaginary. I've had enough of this, Hitler cries. It was imperative to act with lightning speed. Only a swift and sudden intervention was perhaps still capable of stemming the revolt. There was no room for doubt here. It would be better to kill 100 conspirators than to let 10,000 innocent SA men and 10,000 equally innocent civilians kill each other. Hitler reflects for several minutes. All the others around him remain silent. Dealing severely with old comrades from the early fighting days is rending his feelings. I was filled with respectful admiration. Paul Joseph Goebbels will later relate. A witness to that silence for that man upon whom rested the responsibility for the fate of millions of human beings and whom I saw in the process of weighing a painful choice. On the one hand, the peace and tranquility of Germany. On the other, those men who, not, who up to now had been his intimate friends. Citing Prasad on page 201. However far they've gone astray, they are fighting comrades. For years they have shared the same anxieties, the same hopes, and it is with horror that he finds himself forced to be severe with them, concluding the words of Joseph Goebbels. It caused me a great deal of pain, Hitler admitted, but when it is necessary, a leader must rise above his attachments. Hitler is going to anticipate the meeting called by Rome and get there before anyone else. He will not saddle anyone else with the dangerous mission. He will go by himself. Six persons in all will accompany him.
with Goebbels sticking close to his chief. At Godesburg, Hitler's personal plane is damaged, happily for him, because at the Munich airfield they were lying in wait for his plane. A replacement Junkers is brought out, and they climb into the black sky still marked by the storm. Hitler does not say a word during the two hours in the air. Will he still be alive this very evening? He is an old soldier, and he will hurl himself straight at the obstacle, as he did at the front in Flanders and at Artois. He still had time before the plane took off to receive a telephone message from the Gauleteer, or perhaps the party chairman, of Munich, who was named Wagner, and quoting the message. 11.45 p.m. Several hundred SA men have gone through the street shouting abusive slogans against Hitler and the Reichswehr and chanting their song, Sharpen your long knives on the edge of the sidewalk. Leaping hastily from his junkers at Munich, Hitler immediately goes up to the two SA generals there to meet Rome in the afternoon and tears the silver leaves from their collars. Immediately afterwards, he sets off by car for the village of Weissi, where Rome is staying. With him in a car are Goebbels, Otto Dietrich, his press attaché, and three bodyguards. A truck carrying some SS men overtakes them on the way. Mein Führer, Goebbels says, the one who strikes first holds the winning hand. The first round in a fight is always decisive. To strike before anyone else is precisely what Hitler has in mind. As a true fighter, he is going to pounce. The tension between Hitler and Rome had been building for quite a while. At last it was to reach its deadly climax on June 30, 1934. Adolf Hitler is the first to leap from the car onto the porch of the Hanselbauer boarding house where Ernst Rome and his staff are sleeping. It will take only a few seconds from start to finish. The entry door is sent flying. Hitler rushes in. Goebbels and the few SS of the escort run from room to room and burst in before a single sleeper can budge. And what sleepers? The most inveterate of Rome's accomplices, Heinz, who had paraded with him so arrogantly at Breslau just a while ago, leading nearly 100,000 SS members, is still sleeping, stark naked, clinging to his chauffeur. He tries to seize a revolver, is dumbfounded. It has been Hitler's wish that he arrest Rome personally. Evidently, the chauffeur was a Weimar-era MKUltra victim, I guess. Alone and without any weapons, wrote Churchill in his book, The Storm Draws. The Storm Draws Near, I'm sorry. Alone and without any weapons, wrote Churchill admiringly. 
Hitler mounted the staircase and entered Rome's room. Rome's face turned crimson at the sight of Hitler, his features still more marked by the drinking bout of the previous night. He was dragged outside and shoved into a truck with several other survivors. Hitler turned away from him as though dismayed. Suddenly then, there appeared a series of cars arriving at Weissy, with a first lot of the principal SA commanders coming to Rome's meeting. Hitler rushed into the road, stopped the vehicles, and then personally arrested those of the leaders whose complicity was known to him. He knew precisely who Rome's confederates were and who were the ones not informed, and the later were released immediately. The others soon found themselves in the Munich prison. And we have to understand that Hitler and his staff had been reading the communications of Rome and Schleicher and Strasser and these other men for quite some time. Benoit Méchan has revealed that these later had intended to let the other officers in on their plans during the course of the YC conference, thus confronting them with a fait accompli, since the action was to begin at almost the same time in Berlin and in Munich. Those who could not be won over to Rome's side would have been arrested and handed over to the commando shock troops. De Grel says it is not hard to guess what the commandos would have done with them. Just at that moment, at 7.45 a.m., the commando shock troops, especially created by Rome, were also arriving, transported by a column of trucks. That eruption of commandos at such an early morning hour was revealing. If the shock troops were getting here that early... It can only mean that they had received orders at dawn for the very special mission that Rome intended to assign them. And for the second time, it was the Fuhrer himself who then and there went to intervene. Hitler, still without weapons, citing Benoit Meishan, Hitler, still without weapons, advances toward the detachment commander, and orders him, in a tone brooking or inviting, no answer, to turn around and go back to his quarters. The detachment commander complies, and the column of trucks goes off back in the direction of Munich. So they probably weren't in on the scheme as of yet. Thus, at every stage, it was Hitler who braved the risks and put his own life on the line. Churchill has written, if Hitler had arrived an hour later, or the others an hour sooner, history would have taken a different turn. Other SA bigwigs were due to arrive in Munich by train. The moment they got off, they were arrested one after the other right at the station. When Hitler got back to the Brown House at 11 o'clock in the morning, he had the list of prisoners sent to him immediately. There were 200. He himself checked off on the sheet the names of the leaders most implicated who were to be shot.
not there either. Did he try to saddle someone else with the decision and the execution order? Responsible for his country, he took his responsibilities to his country very seriously. Churchill himself would be obliged to recognize the fact and quoting Churchill from the same book by his prompt and ruthless action he had assured his position and no doubt saved his life that knighted along knives as it was called had preserved the unity of National Socialist Germany de Grel says that same day in the afternoon the SA commanders checked off on the list were brought to face firing squads. It is the will of the Fuhrer, Heil Hitler, ready, aim, fire. This may seem like an unfair act, and that perhaps these men may have deserved trials, but in reality the actions of Rome and his confederates were an insurrection and were properly treated as an act of war, not as common crimes. Continuing with de Grel, who writes in reference to the executions, that took place at exactly five o'clock in the afternoon, the hour when those executed would presumably have ended their meeting with Rome. And Rome, he was still alive. Hitler was still hesitating because of services rendered. It was not until the next day that Hitler mastering his personal feelings and bitterness, would accept at Goring's insistence that the chief culprit finally be executed. At that moment, Hitler declared that it would be necessary to let Rome carry out his own execution. A revolver was placed within reach of his hand. He refused to touch it. Ten minutes later, a burst of machine gun fire killed him in his cell. Hitler true to his friends to an almost impossible degree received the news with dismay and citing Brassad when a young SS officer hands Hitler a message telling him that Rome has rejected suicide and has been killed Hitler's face grows very pale he puts the message in his pocket. A few minutes later, he withdraws to his apartment. De Grel says that Hitler had an iron fist, but he couldn't bring himself to use it on an old comrade. And rather, we esteem that a leader should have as much loyalty to his comrades and his followers than they have to him. Hitler exhibited even greater loyalty than what would be expected of him, even where his comrades had failed him. Here we see an irrefutable exhibition of the exceptional character, fidelity, and bravery of Adolf Hitler. The average Western politician would simply have hid in his office and called for the army, peeing himself and hoping that they would take his side. 
Continuing with DeGrelle, Hitler had returned to Berlin by 6 o'clock in the evening of the same day. He had landed at Tempelhof without a hat, his face as white as chalk, fatigued by a night without sleep, unshaven, offering his hand in silence to those who were waiting for him. Goring presented him with the list. At Berlin, too, the repression had been swift and severe, harsher than at Munich. The civilians implicated had been executed at the same time as the SA commanders linked to Rome and to General Kurt von Schleicher. From the moment of receiving the watchword, Hummingbird at dawn, a column of mobile guards had joined Goring's personal guard. Goring, like Hitler, had made them a brief speech, and de Grel, quoting that speech, it will be necessary to obey without question and to have courage, for putting someone to death is hard. In a flash, the commanders, who were in league with Rome and Schleicher, were arrested and lined up against the wall at the Lichterfeld prison. And here, too, it was the chief who made the decisions. One by one, Goring looked each prisoner in the face, this one, that one, as at Munich, he personally, and on the spot, stripped those most deeply involved of their rank before their execution. Gisevius, though a most notorious anti-Hitlerite, has felt it necessary to make mention the confessions of the guilty, and citing Hans Gisevius. Uhl is the one who affirmed, Uhl, U-H-L, is the way the name is spelled, Uhl is the one who affirmed, a little while before he was shot, that he had been designated to assassinate Hitler. Balding, one of the section commanders of the SA, that he would have made an attempt against Himmler. And de Grel himself continues, and he says that Ernst, the boozer with a dozen cars, the head of the Berlin SA, who spent 300,000 marks per month on banquets, had been seized at the very moment when he was about to leave for the Canaries. Hardly more than a few hours, and it was all over. De Grel doesn't make it clear whether Ernst is leaving for the Canary Islands for his month leave, or if he's trying to flee. Those mentioned are not the only ones to perish. At Berlin, the political career, I'm sorry, the political center of all these intrigues, various important civilians had been mixed up in the affair. First, there had been Vice-Chancellor Franz von Papen, the sly schemer. That morning, his arrogance rapidly diminished. Goring had personally treated him with consideration. They were colleagues. Papen was still Vice-Chancellor. I strongly advise you, Goring told him, to stay at home and not to go out for any reason. Poppin had immediately understood and scurried away to safety. He would stay buried at home without giving a moment's thought to his close colleagues sitting in his ministry, 
even those who had prepared for him the malicious text of his speech at Marburg prior to Rome's operation. As for what might happen to them, as soon as he abandoned them at the vice-chancellery, he would pay no heed. Afterward, he would never ask for a word of explanation concerning them, nor would he express a single regret. They would die that morning nevertheless. His right-hand man, Eric Klausener, had tried to flee and had been killed by two bullets fired through his half-open door. He had wanted on leaving to get his hat, and that made him lose the few fatal seconds. He died with his hat on, like a conscientious citizen. Poppin's own private secretary, Herbert von Bose, would fall right in the cabinet building. Edgar Young, Poppin's chief writer, the one who had drafted his tirade of June 17th for him word for word, would be mowed down just like the two others. Thus, after having been abandoned heroically by Poppin, the first click was done away with. Click, the first group, that sort of click. Next it would be the turn of the Schleicher Rome government's future ministry, minister of industry, Gregor Strasser. He had hidden in a factory that made pharmaceutical products. He was caught there, and he was not long in being liquidated. Let me say that his brother Otto Strasser, living in exile, was also a prominent leftist within the National Socialist German Workers' Party until he was expelled from the party in 1930. He had already fled Germany by this time and spent most of his years in exile in Canada peddling lies to publishers about both Hitler and the party. I think he lived until at least the 1950s. I don't quite remember. De Grel continues, And one of the most important of the plotters, the future Chancellor of post-Hitler Germany, General Schleicher. He had been the first to pay. He had not even had time to seek a refuge. He had been surprised in his office and shot down dead before he could utter a cry. His wife, who had flung herself upon him, had died bravely under the same hail of bullets. She was probably trying to get his wallet. I'm joking. Always when such things happen, overexcitable people go too far or indulge their darker instincts, and in the violence of the brawl, some innocent people did not get hurt. Did get hurt. These casualties are what today we chastely call regrettable mistakes, and actually we would consider them to be unavoidable collateral damage. DeGrell says more than one occurred on June 30, 1934. A peaceable professor named Schmidt was confused with one of the conspirators of the SA. They both bore the same surname and first name. And here an editor makes a lengthy footnote which says that according to William Shearer, the Jew, in the rise and fall of the Third Reich, the innocent man was Dr. Willie Schmid, without the T. The local SA leader was named Willie Schmidt, 
SA leader Willie Schmidt had, in the meantime, been arrested by another SS detachment and shot. Continuing with DeGrell, victim of another mistake was a good old friend of Hitler's, Father Schlemper, the former Jesuit. In the heat of such operations, where for an hour perhaps public tranquility is at stake, errors and excesses do take place. They are regrettable, condemnable, and no matter what one does, inevitable. In August and September of 1944, and now Grell takes a digression to compare the actions of the Night of the Long Knives to the actions of certain other contemporary Western leaders, and Hitler actually paled in comparison to what these men did. In August and September of 1944, one Charles de Gaulle would show very little concern when his partisan thugs, with abominable refinements of cruelty, assassinated tens of thousands of Frenchmen, 104,000 according to official U.S. figures, quite simply because their ideas of what was good for France differed from his. And among all the killers of 1944, communist and Gaullist alike, not a single one, not even of those caught red-handed in the worst excesses, would ever be the object of sanction. The same is true of Belgium, where the assassins who freely massacred in isolated villages hundreds of parents and children of the volunteers of the Eastern Front, meaning those fighting for the Waffen-SS, would without exception enjoy total immunity from punishment in 1945. Indeed, they would receive pensions. They would be decorated. If Hitler was forced to act severely on June 30, 1934, he had brought himself to it not a moment too soon. He might easily have been forestalled that day by the Romes and the Schleichers. His indecision during May and June very nearly proved fatal. From the moment he became aware that mistakes or abuses had been committed, he took action with equal severity against the police or militiamen who had committed them. Three such were shot that same evening. I shall order punishment, he exclaimed, for those who have committed excesses. I most emphatically forbid any new acts of repression. And he's talking there of people on the right side of the law, or of the coup, or the National Socialist side. Several SS men were executed for their excesses during the Night of the Long Knives. Two, I believe. In his book, The Storm Approaches, Churchill would make it a point of honor to repeat, almost with admiration, the reasons that obtained with Hitler when he saw that there was no other solution but to crush the imminent rebellion. And quoting Churchill, it was imperative to act with lightning speed at that most decisive of all hours. Because I had only a few men with me, 
Revolts are always put down by iron laws that are ever the same. Quoting Churchill, quoting Hitler, obviously. Churchill, in a similar case, one may be sure, would certainly have reacted with harshness one hundred times more implacable. How many dead were there? There, as in everything else, when it comes down to rapping Hitler, the figures tossed out had been prodigious. A thousand dead, according to some. More than a thousand dead, according to others. The estimates as to the number of persons liquidated vary from five to seven thousand persons, Churchill would later write as if ashamed of having more or less praised Hitler for his energy. Presently, presently, today, one footnote in the Wikipedia article for the Night of the Long Knives says that 85 people were executed and that Goring alone had over a thousand people arrested. Other sources estimate between 150 and 200 dead. These are much more conservative figures than the example which de Grell complains about here from Churchill. Continuing with our article, what is the evidence to support such claims? In reference to Churchill's claim that five to seven thousand persons were killed that night. None. These fantastic figures were thrown into the air to chill the blood of the great public outside of Germany. For the warmongering press that had been howling at Hitler's heels for nearly two years, it offered a great opportunity to heap opprobrium upon him, albeit with a shameless disregard of truth or even probability. That method of provocation, repeated at every turn from January of 1933 on, was infallibly conducive to the furious hatreds that degenerated into World War II in 1939. If we stick honestly to the historically established exact figures, how many plotters or confederates fell on June 30, 1934? Seventy-seven in all, Hitler affirmed to the Reichstag. Even an enemy as impassioned as Gisevius, the ex-Gestapo member, had to admit, doubtless unwillingly, that if we are to believe the rumors, there were supposedly more than a hundred shot on that Sunday alone at Lichterfeld, but that figure is certainly exaggerated. In all probability, there were no more than forty apparently citing Gisevius's to the very dregs. Well, there was no other day of execution but that Sunday. Recapitulating all the names that he was able to collect throughout the entire Reich, Gisevius arrived at 90 men executed. Moreover, he further adds, supposing the figure to be exact, and the other 910, or 6,830, whose execution was trumpeted around the planet by the Churchills or Junior Churchills, Gusevius, who was on the spot and had anti-Nazi informers all around him, didn't arrive at a hundredth of Churchill's figure, and he had only this pitiful explanation to offer.
Those who had been listed as dead turned up again at the end of a few weeks. In a few hours, and at a price that, when all is said and done, was not very high, about one death per million German citizens, Hitler had restored order to his country. Never was a revolution less costly and less bloody, Goebbels would be able to say. The anguished screams and the lies of foreign critics were the most arrant, or perhaps outright, hypocrisy. What did the swift execution of a handful of mutineers on the verge of rebellion amount to, alongside the wholesale slaughter perpetrated by the so-called glorified grand ancestors of the French Revolution? Napoleon himself had General Mallet shot for conspiracy. The Duke d'Anguin was killed at his order in the ditches of Vincennes. He exterminated tens of thousands of Breton opponents in his punitive expeditions. A political act is not judged by the victims it makes, but by the evils it averts. It was the philosopher Joseph de Maistre who said that, a century and a half before Rome and Schleicher were executed. With undeniable personal courage, Hitler had been able to control the situation at limited cost and in a minimum of time. It cannot be doubted that without his resolution, Germany would have fallen into chaos, and rapidly. The army would certainly have moved to block Rome, resulting perhaps in thousands of deaths and an immediate collapse of the economic recovery. The shouts of triumph that went up abroad to see this brief outburst of violence taking place in Germany were very significant one would imagine that they were already sounding the mort. The mort is a note sounded on a horn when the prey is killed. It was not only Hitler's right, but his duty to take the red-hot iron from its forge and cauterize the canker to the bone. He did so with the force and the promptness that were needed to spare the nation anything beyond the swift and radical elimination of the corruption. He was the judge and a sword, a true leader in such hours of extreme peril, must face up to such things, not hesitate a second, but decide and act. The German people understood as much even that same evening, when Hitler, his face ashen after such a tragic event, left the Tempelhof airfield at six o'clock in the evening, a group of slaters working there on a roof let out a shout Bravo Adolf in their admiration they called him by his first name twice more they shouted their Bravo Adolf it was the first salute of the people on the return of the lover of justice a few hours later another Bravo Adolf was going to ring out. This one still more impressive than the Bravo of the Slaters. It was that of the highest authority of the Reich, 
old Marshal von Hindenburg. That same evening he had telegraphed the Führer from his new deck estate. It appears from reports given me that you have crushed all the seditious intrigues and attempted treason. Thanks to your personal, energetic, and courageous intervention, you have saved the German people from a grave peril. Let me express to you my profound gratitude and sincere esteem. Signed, von Hindenburg. Freed of the threat of a fratricidal subversion, the army, too, at once fell in line unanimously behind the Chancellor. As soon as von Hindenburg's message reached Berlin, the Minister of National Defense issued an order of the day to the Wehrmacht. The Führer has personally attacked and crushed the rebels and traitors with the decisiveness of a soldier and with exemplary courage. The Wehrmacht, as the only armed force of the nation as a whole, while remaining aloof from internal conflicts, will express to him its recognition of his devotion and fidelity. The Führer asks us to maintain cordial relations with the new SA, the SA without Rome, aware that we serve a common ideal. We shall be happy to do so. The state of alert is lifted throughout the entire Reich. And that's signed von Blomberg. General Werner von Blomberg was Minister of the Reichswehr and then Minister of War until 1938 when he was caught up in a scandal involving a young woman. He nevertheless spent his remaining years in obscure positions in the German army and was captured and arrested in 1945. He died of colon cancer a short time after testifying at Nuremberg in March of 1946. It was von Blomberg that Hitler had hoped Rome would learn to cooperate with when he appointed Rome to his cabinet, and Rome had refused. Continuing with de Grel and the SA, no single act of resistance or complicity would be noted anywhere in the entire Reich after June 30, 1934. For Almost all the SA members, it was Hitler who counted, not the men who were shot. The later had been six or seven dozen all told, and were either coldly ambitious, like Schleicher, or else leftist adventurers like Rome, as well as a few accomplices, whose heads had been turned by their unwanted rise, and who clamored for still more evidently describing men like Ernst. After all, Gisevius would acknowledge, dealing them the unkindest cut of all. It was only a matter there of a very tiny clique, group staff officers with their paid guards, a bunch of hoodlums, such as are to be found anywhere there's a disorder or a row. The bulk of the essay would not have let themselves be led disastrously astray. The French ambassador, Francois Poncet, Schleicher's and Rome's old friend, would later write that even if Rome and Schleicher had been able to carry out their plot, they would have failed. 
Their revolt would have ended in a bloody massacre, probably a hundred times more murderous than the brief repression of June 30th. They had not even been able to act in good time. Gesevius would add, quoting Gesevius, the history of June 30th comes down to the choice of the opportune moment. Rome fell because he let the favorable hour slip by. The goring Himmler team, and Hitler of course, won because it acted at the proper time. Karl Marx had said it a century earlier, neither nations nor women are spared when they are not on their guard. Hitler had been on his guard. With black humor, Goring remarked, they prepared a second revolution for the evening of June 30th, but we made it instead, and against them. Hitler was hardly more than awake the next morning, the 1st of July, 1934, when continuous cheering rose up from below the windows of the Chancellery. Gesevius, who at that time was not yet secretly betraying the Nazi regime, as a part of the Camarilla of Wilhelm Canaris, Gesevius was in the Chancellery when Hitler drew near to the balcony. On this occasion, Gesevius later noted, I had an unexpected opportunity to see Hitler up close. He was at the famous window and had just received the ovation of the people of Berlin who had come there in throngs. Speaking of Gesevius, he made a deep bow when Hitler passed in front of him, but he was consumed with fear. Under the insistence of that Caesar-like gaze, I almost wanted to crawl into a hole. The Caesar of the Chancellery had shown guts and a sense of strategy, and the people massed in the street below cheering him. With a sure intuition of the danger and the successful outcome, had understood. The sentence construction here is a little ragged, but that's the original. It seems like he should have said they had understood. That the people had a sure intuition of the danger and the successful outcome. That's why they cheered Hitler, because they had understood. By June 2nd, 1934, the whole of Germany, I'm sorry, by July 2nd, 1934, two days after the Night of the Long Knives, the whole of Germany was back on track. The SA and the army were reconciled. The political and social reunification of the Reich had been achieved in 1933. Now, at the beginning of July of 1934, Military and ideological reunification were about to be realized. Pledges of loyalty to Hitler were coming from all sides. Even the high clergy sanctimoniously followed suit. Dr. Hjalmar H.G. Schatt himself found no grounds for reproach. No more than a few days after the executions, he would calmly enter the Hitler government, now purged of Rome's presence. This Dr. Hjalmar Schad was former president of the Reichsbank, 
and would serve as German Minister of Economics from August 1934 through November of 1937, and remain Reichsbank President until January of 1939. His father was a Prussian Lutheran and his mother a Dutch Baroness. Schatt had supposedly dabbled with the German resistance, those who were opposed to Hitler, including Hans Gesevius, who is cited frequently here by de Grel. Put on trial at Nuremberg for trumped-up charges of conspiracy and crimes against peace. Schatt was acquitted and lived in Germany until his death in Munich in 1970. Continuing with de Grel. On July 13, 1934, speaking before the Reichstag, with the entire German nation glued to their radios, Hitler assumed full responsibility for his actions. And here he is quoting Hitler's speech. The guilty paid a very heavy tribute. Nineteen superior officers of the SA and 31 SA commanders and members of the Brown Shirt Militia were shot. Three SS commanders and civilians implicated in the plot suffered the same fate. Thirteen SA commanders and civilians lost their lives resisting arrest. Three others committed suicide. Five party members no longer belonging to the SA were also shot. Three SS men, I thought it was two, three SS men who had been guilty of mistreating prisoners were shot. If anybody blames me for having, for not having referred the guilty to the regular courts, I can only reply, it was only by decimating them that order was restored in the rebel divisions. I personally gave the order to shoot the guilty. I also gave orders to take a red-hot iron to the wound and burn to the flesh every abscess infecting our internal life and poisoning our relations with other countries. And I further gave the order to shoot down immediately any rebel who made the least attempt to resist arrest. In that hour, I was responsible for the fate of the German nation, and I was thereby the supreme judge of the German people. Hitler taking all the responsibility, but also kind of forgetting about his God. That should be noted in an examination of National Socialist Germany. De Grel says that if there was still a saboteur in the remaining in a sh- I'm sorry, if there was still a saboteur remaining in the shadows, Hitler was bent on warning him that a fate like that of Schleicher's and Rome's awaited him. Any show of a plot or complicity in a plot will be smashed without any regard for rank or person, again quoting Hitler. Believing that Hitler was going to be overthrown, the warmongers abroad, notably French Council President Dumerg, the vindictive and authoritarian little old Provençal, rejoiced too soon. It was Domergue who would be ousted from power, rejected by the French people that same year, while out of the tragedy of June 30, 1934, had come a stronger Germany, freed of all threat of internal subversion, and with the army and the SA finally brought into mutual harmony. 
politically, socially, militarily, and ideologically. The Germans were now a united people. Or so it seemed. The following month, by casting tens of millions of votes in favor of Hitler for the third time, Germany was going to make known to the whole world that she was forming around her leader the most formidable unity the Reich had ever known. The affair of the Night of the Long Knives was begun on June 30th, and it was over by July 2nd, 1934. Reich President Paul von Hindenburg died of natural causes at the age of 87 on August 2nd, 1934. Rather than hold an election to fill the vacant office of president, where Hitler would have to run against whoever would contend against him. At this point, a proposal was made to merge the offices of Chancellor and President. If the merger was approved by an election of the people, Hitler would assume the new office, already being Chancellor. If the merger was denied by the people, separate elections would have to be held to determine the leadership of the Reich. So the Night of the Long Knives could not have happened at a better time for Adolf Hitler. Hitler won the election because the merger was approved by the people and he won with a resounding margin and by that victory he became the undisputed leader of Germany. Leon de Grel describes the affair in his next article titled 38 million Germans make their voices heard a landslide, landslide victory for Adolf Hitler. Here we shall present this last article in a series, as it is fitting to see the wave of support garnered by Adolf Hitler in the immediate aftermath of the Night of the Long Knives. At least it's nearly the immediate aftermath. Six weeks is not a long time. Tigrell begins by stating, and, and this is why I believe that his opening paragraph in his first article we read tonight mistakenly identifies Marshal von Hindenburg as Oscar because he mistakenly identifies him here in this article also. I don't know how Tigrell could have made that mistake, but he did. By extraordinary luck, this is Tigrell's opening paragraph of the article. By extraordinary luck, the luck that had long watched over his life like a star, Adolf Hitler had been able to employ his lancet at the proper time. For exactly two months and two days, and that's also an error, for exactly two months and two days after the Ernst Rome affair, the old Marshal Oscar von Hindenburg, 87 years of age, was going to die. A delay of three months and Hitler would have been right in the middle of the civil brawl at the very time of the succession. Every effort would then have been made by the army, by the reactionaries of the Heron Club, and by other capitalist cabals to impose, as Hindenburg's successor, some conservative or other, preferably a son of Wilhelm II, who would have restored the old imperial system of pre-1918. 
And here we do not know why de Graal refers to Oscar von Hindenburg, who was the son of Paul von Hindenburg. And Oscar lived until 1960. He even mentions Oscar later in this article. More surprisingly, the error was not caught by the Barnes Review editorial staff. It was Paul von Hindenburg, who was president of the Reich and who died at age 87 on August 2nd of 1934, one month and two days after the Night of the Long Knives. Oscar retired from active army service as a major that same year, although he returned to service on the Eastern Front in 1942. Oscar appears in this article because he has a role in the history of this election. However, it was his father Paul that died at this time. DeGrell continues, Hitler who in his first months as Chancellor had already put, had to put up with the supervision of the aged Hindenburg, a man not always easy to live with, would then have seen some socially hidebound prince or other set over him, someone wrapped up in the vainglory of his position, a copy of Victory Manual of Italy hanging like a lead millstone around Mussolini's neck since the March on Rome of October 28, 1922. Mussolini made a mistake that day when he didn't tell the ridiculous dwarf, who was notable only for the plume which doubled his height, to go jump in a Tiber. Three-fourths of Mussolini's potential would be stifled by that pompous dynastic sterility, encumbered as it was with stuffed shirt dignitaries, bespangled with honorary decorations, and where feminine grace was represented only by titled and wizened old dowagers decked out in gleaming finery. Degrel had no love for the Italian nobility, I guess. Hitler would never have tolerated such a pretentious and soul-destroying circus. The mopping up of June 30th, 1934, had rid him of the palace plotters. All of them, since that date, had curled back up in their empty shells. As for von Papen, shunted aside and out of government, he was eager to find some employment or other, even modest employment, in Hitler's service. Later he would be delighted at the mere beckoning of a finger to accept being sent like a diplomatic messenger boy to Vienna and then to Ankara. The public had already forgotten Hugenberg. Hugenberg was an old politician and economist and minister of economics for the first six months of 1933. As for Schatt, Hjalmar Schatt, he had triumphantly taken a seat in the Führer's cabinet, while the smell of gunpowder in the ministerial offices was still making people sneeze. In other words, in, in other words, immediately after the night of the long knives. After two years of eager collaboration, Schatt had been able to find his niche. He had carried his pro-Hitler enthusiasm to the point where he had a fabulous gold hooked cross mounted as a sparkling jewel set in rubies made for his wife. For a time he would keep quiet. 
Hindenburg had been pleased at the restoration of order on June 30th. The Bohemian Corporal was a thing of the past. He now held Hitler in real esteem. In July, the Marshal had begun his death struggle. It was certain that his death would cause a very great shock in Germany. I don't know how the man was 87. Right up to his last days, he had steered the ship of the Reich with firmness. He had passed roaring cataracts, World War I, the defeat, the fifteen years of failure of the Weimar Republic. When the marshal was about to enter the shadows of senility, Hitler had pulled himself aboard in his small boat. The marshal had believed at first that Hitler was going to make them capsize, but then he had seen that he dominated and was master of the violent course of the waters, and that the old historic flag so dear to him was waving anew atop the mast. Hindenburg became sentimentally attached to Hitler. The later had hastened to his bedside when he lay dying. Hindenburg, no longer able to recognize faces, mistook Hitler for his ex-emperor, Wilhelm II, who had been chopping wood in Holland for more than sixteen years. The flame of life still trembled on for yet a few hours. In the silence of dawn, on August 2, 1934, it flickered out. Hitler did not lose an instant. There, too, as on June 30th, he was going to forestall any intrigues. One scarcely had time to wonder who was going to succeed the glorious deceased when, just a few hours after his death, the Reichsgazetteblatt published the text of a law that cut short all vain speculation. And it said that the duties of the President of the Reich are combined with those of the Chancellor of the Empire. In consequence, all the powers and prerogatives of the President are transferred to the Führer and Chancellor, Hitler. He will designate his own representative. Berlin, the 1st of August, 1934. And that was signed by Adolf Hitler, Rudolf Hess, von Papen, who was still vice-chancellor, von Neuroth, Dr. Frick, Count Sherwin von Krosig, or Schwerin von Krosig, Franz Selt, Dr. Gertner, von Blomberg, von Eltz, Walter Dahr, Dr. Goebbels, Hermann Göring, Dr. Rust, and Hjalmart Schad the entire cabinet. It was signed by the 15 members of the government, including the conservatives selected in January 1933, as prison guards for Hitler, Baron von Neurath, Count Schwerin, von Krosig, and even the devious von Papen, despite the fact that he was no, no longer a minister except theoretically, having in fact been ousted from the council after the failed putsch. These worthy civilians, in their pinstripe trousers, so standoffish the previous year, were now only too anxious to please. As for the wearers of another kind of trousers, with the purple stripe, the Reichswehr top brass, they would have been able to erect a very formidable, formidable 
barricade on the road to succession if Hitler had not put a radical end to the Reichswehr-SA conflict on June 30, 1934, and recognized the former as the exclusive armed forces. Thus recognized, the Reichswehr from that day on had seemingly thrown in its lot with the Führer without reserve. On August 2, 1934, proof would be given of the soundness of Hitler's political instincts and of his tactical skill. Without the preceding 30th of June, the triumph of August 2nd would doubtless not have been possible. On that day, the top generals of the army, Reichswehr Minister General von Blomberg, the Army Chief of Staff General von Fritsch, and the Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Rader, were the very first to come and pay homage to Hitler and tender him an oath of allegiance much more strict than that which had bound them to Hindenburg as the head of state. For this time it was to Hitler personally that they had then and there to take an oath of loyalty. And repeating the oath, the Grell writes that it said, I solemnly swear before God in all circumstances to obey Adolf Hitler, Führer of the Reich and of the German people, Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces. I pledge myself to act at all times as a brave soldier and to respect this oath even at the risk of my life. De Grell then says, On the same morning, throughout Germany, 100,000 Reichswehr officers, non-commissioned officers and soldiers repeated that same oath with great ceremony. From then on, the commander of the army, the sole commander, was Hitler. The army that was acting distrustfully a few months earlier would from that day forward be under the orders of the Führer of the Reich and of the German people who had become their commander-in-chief. Every general would have to stand at attention before the Bohemian ex-corporal, said General von Reichenau in a statement to the Petit Journal of Paris on August 6, 1934. The Chancellor kept his word by nipping in the bud Rome's attempt to merge the essay with the Reichswehr. We love him because he is truly conducted himself like a soldier. The army admires him for his personal courage, and I, meaning Reichenau, wholly subscribe to the words he uttered the other day. The army can trust in me as I trust in the army. In 17 months, Hitler, who had not even been a German citizen three years before, had become the sole master of the army as well as of Germany. Hitler, a stage manager in the style of Wagner, organized a funeral for Hindenburg such as no emperor had known in the Reich in the course of a thousand years. The marshal was going to be buried in the heart of a monument like an enormous fortress whose eight massive granite towers would rise in the middle of the battlefield where, on August 29, 1914, Hindenburg had crushed the Russian invasion at Tannenberg. Here, a few German divisions had got the better of several hundred thousand Slavs, who were hurled back in panic 
in the Masurian Lakes, where they surrendered en masse, while their commander-in-chief, General Samsonov, committed suicide. Sixty-seven million Germans listened spellbound by radio to to the description of the long veils of crepe falling from the towers, of the coffin placed in the center of the great lawn, the hundreds of glorious banners watching over him, his oldest comrades of the Great War, led by Marshal von Mackensen, imposing in his shapka of the Yulin guards, formed a square about the deceased. Hitler advanced to face the corpse and saluted the hero, who was entering on immortality. Dead Marshal, enter now Valhalla, which doesn't make Hitler a pagan. Everyone held his breath. Some officers came forward, hoisted the heavy coffin to their shoulders, while the march of the dead warriors from the Twilight of the Gods, which was the last of the four operas by Richard Wagner that make up the Ring of the Nibelung, was resounding like a long smothered sigh. At the moment when the recumbent body was deposited in the Tower of Marshals. The booming of 101 cannon shots shook the plain, the lakes and the woods, and reverberated to the furthermost villages of the Reich, carried via radio. Hitler, with imposing solemnity, had been at that moment the conscience of the nation's saluting greatness. Hitler was, and always had been, anxious to act only with the consent and approval of the people. That is the historical truth. He wanted the people to ratify this increase in his power and to grant it to him in their turn. For the second time in less than eight months, he was going to trust his fate to a plebiscite in which the people would let him know their will. Already on the day before that burial worthy of ancient Rome, or the return of Napoleon's ashes, Hitler had charged his Minister of the Interior with the arranging of that national consultation. It is my wish, quoting Hitler, it is my wish that the constitutional decision taken by the cabinet to confer upon my person the offices exercised by the deceased President of the Reich receive the explicit sanction of the German people. Profoundly convinced that all sovereignty emanates from the people and must be confirmed by the people by means of a free and secret vote, I ask you to make the necessary arrangements to submit the decision of the cabinet to the German people so that they may pronounce on it by a referendum vote the law which we had read merging the offices of president and chancellor. Whoever wished to vote would vote as he wished according to his convictions and preferences. At the time of the first plebiscite in December 1933, it was still possible to affirm that Hitler had won it because he had based the electoral consultation on a problem of foreign policy, a subject on which nearly the nearly unanimous agreement of the Germans was admitted in advance. This time, on August 19, 1934, it was no longer the League of Nations or disarmament of the people, disarmament that the people would be pronouncing on. 
Degrelle's lack of conjunctions and prepositions makes reading his work difficult at times. It would be on Hitler himself, on the increased authority that had been definitely granted him, uniting in the same hands the powers of the Chancellor of the Reich and those of the Chief of State that Hindenburg had exercised previously. One could still wonder whether that extension of Hitler's power would have been approved by the deceased, whether he feared it or would have encouraged it. It was whispered that no testament of the marshals existed. In any case, the government knew nothing of it. An official statement from the Chancellor's office even let it be known, following the interment, that Marshal Hindenburg had left no political testament. But one did exist, not only a personal letter from Hindenburg to Hitler, but a message of seven pages preceded by a dozen noble lines in the marshal's own handwriting. The marshal had even made several alterations in the text. It ended with the holographic signature of Hindenburg, written in the presence of his private advisors. On the envelope, the old man had written beautifully, the following note. This is my testament to the German people and to their Chancellor. This letter is to be transmitted by my son, Oscar, to the Chancellor of the Reich. I give thanks to Providence for letting me be witness in the evening of my life to the hour of our national recovery. I thank all those who have contributed with a disinterested love of the fatherland to set Germany right again. My Chancellor, Adolf Hitler, and his movement have taken a decisive step of far-reaching historical consequence in restoring unity to the German people without distinction of either class or profession. I know that much remains to be done, and I wish with all my heart that the great act of national resurrection and unification of the people may be crowned with a reconciliation that will embrace the entire German fatherland. Degrell says that what was most extraordinary, however, was that Hitler, even though Chancellor, had remained ignorant of the existence of this testament for 13 days. In fact, he had believed that there was no testament right up to the moment on August 15, 1934, when the text was made known to the German people, that the marshal's son, Colonel Oscar von Hindenburg, who at the beginning of January 1933 was still a professed adversary of Hitler's, had not wished to reveal the testament to the public and provoke possible violent debate before the emotion of the great man's passing had abated somewhat. He made an effort to explain over the radio to all of Germany. My father himself, now deceased, saw in Adolf Hitler his immediate successor as supreme head of the German Empire. I am thus obeying the desire of my honored father when I urge every man and woman of Germany in the referendum of August 19th to ratify the transfer 
of all the powers and prerogatives previously exercised by him to the person of the Führer and Chancellor of the Reich. Now, it must be said that common mainstream sources, Jewish sources, and also Wikipedia attach this endorsement to tax breaks and other incentives that the NSDAP supposedly extended to Oscar von Hindenburg, evidently slandering the entire affair and all of the parties involved. I don't believe it. Continuing with DeGrell, on the very evening of the vote, the dethroned Kaiser's eldest son, whom the monarchists had hoped would succeed Hindenburg at the head of the Reich, came before the microphones and, to the surprise of many people, announced his adherence to the man that had been considered his rival, saying, I too shall vote for Adolf Hitler, the crown prince declared. And that would be the son of Wilhelm II. Nonetheless, various considerations could still swing the vote the other way. The monarchists still contrived to hang on to their illusions. Moreover, although half of the unemployment problem had been solved at that date, August of 1934, Germany still counted three million men out of work who, when casting their ballots, might be seized by discouragement or irritation. Tigrell looking for ways that people may have voted against Hitler on August 19th. He says, finally, and above all, there was the immense army of the SA to think of, in conformity with his written promise to Secretary Antony Eden of England, Hitler had just finished eliminating more than two million members and had then disallowed the remaining members the right to bear arms. So there, too, with that recent grievance preying on them, the essay members might vote against in protest. The death of Rome was also quite recent. Approving Hitler with one's vote was equivalent to frankly approving Rome's liquidation. And Schleichers and Strassers. Unyielding monarchists, unemployed workers, essay men demobilized against their will, wouldn't they vote no either by tradition or from rancor or aversion? All those reactions were possible. Moreover, that was partly the case. In certain former bastions of the communists in Berlin, remember earlier in the series, Tigrell had informed us that Rome had enlisted entire squadrons of communist thugs into the SA. Rome being a Marxist would have been closer in persuasion to the communist thugs than he would have been to the true national socialists. In certain former bastions of the communists in Berlin, the no's or no votes reached 30% of the vote, and in Breslau, Lübeck, Aachen, and Hamburg, nearly 25%. Proof 
for a third time in less than two years, that anyone in Germany who wanted to vote against Hitler could do so freely and secretly. Degrell trying to emphasize the fact that the elections were free and that they weren't rigged, that Hitler was a true Democrat. He truly sought the approval of his people. He says, yes, about four million Germans, making full use of their rights as voters, did indicate their opposition to the leader of National Socialism by their negative votes, while 38 million, 362,760 others, that is to say, 88.9% of the electorate, according the Führer, a resounding yes vote. Hindenburg, on April 10, 1932, had received 19.3 million votes on the day of his re-election as President of the Reich. That is to say, barely more than half of the 38.3 million votes obtained by Hitler on August 19, 1934. Hitler had surpassed by 19 million affirmative votes the 19.3 million yes votes obtained by his predecessor, the Marshal, renowned though the later was. The proof was complete. After the unification of the parties, the unification of the states, the unification of the classes, and the social unification, all fully carried into effect, now Hitler was just completing the military unification and the ideological unification of Germany and a vast majority of the nation approved. It was not a country divided into ten rival factions that followed him haltingly, as in the democracies, but a people powerfully united. The Unification of the Parties by Unification of the Parties de Grell is referring to the outlawing of all political parties, except the NSDAP, by Hitler's Reichstag, which I believe happened in the middle of 1933. All the same, that enormous vote, whose like no country save Germany had seen in the course of the entire century, ought to have given the foreign government something to think about. Three months earlier, Hitler made proposals to the French and English that were obviously conciliatory. They had been flatly rejected. At times, England seemed less fanatical. On March 24, 1934, a memorandum from the Foreign Office had suggested, not without humor, if there must be a burial, we might as well hold it while Hitler is willing to pay for the funeral services. But now the German referendum was going to give the British the contrary impression that they had fallen right into a swarm of wasps. On the very day of the plebiscite of August 19, 1934, as if wishing to take a revenge for it in advance, the British government rejected the last possibility of world disarmament. It proclaimed that Britain was renouncing its entirely its inclination to disarm and was immediately going to double its air force and form 42 new squadrons. True to his offer made to the British in March 1934, an offer 
churlishly rejected by the French. Hitler had, two months before, in a unilateral gesture, reduced the SA by two-thirds and disarmed the remaining third. As for his air force, at that time it was virtually nil. With that being the case, what possible rhyme or reason was there in this initiative of England's that could only be considered by Germany as a provocation? It must inevitably start a reaction. For if the British, instead of reducing their air force by a third, abruptly doubled it, why would the Germans be alone in not having their own air force? Why did they have to remain eternally prostrate in humiliating inferiority? Why the British decision, which strictly speaking, nothing at the time justified, marked the beginning of what was to become a most appalling competition, a recrudescence of suspicions and enmities, and the artificial forming of misbegotten alliances. After having fired off their rejection of any and all offers of disarmament in a seemingly deliberate affront to Hitler, like an upper cup to the chops. France had then, for her part, wasted no time. Her minister of foreign affairs, Barthou, his goatee flying in the wind, had immediately rushed to Warsaw, to Prague, to Bucharest, and to Belgrade, setting his nets everywhere as he fished for war. So we see that Adolf Hitler was a true soldier, a courageous leader who faced up to his own risks, had earned the respect and support of his countrymen and their leaders by his valor, and ultimately was the legitimately legitimately elected leader of his nation. So he was a democrat, he was also a peacemaker. This is all far removed from the propaganda which we are usually fed, and which we hope to permanently put to rest with this series of presentations, at least among our brothers and sisters in Christian identity and Christian nationalist circles. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.